I've been thinking um, in the last few weeks um, about how we've come, kind of become a real um, advanced, civilized uh, society, you know. And, but as we've become more advanced, more civilized, there are things, there are components within uh, society that are still quite toxic, quite um, harmful to us as individuals. You know, there's been huge leaps forward in terms of areas of modern science and technology and medicine and education. Now great, great things. I think you'd all agree. They've been moving forward, strides, brilliant. In fact, if you look back on certain elements of history, things have come along <clears throat> and really revolutionized history, really made a mark on history and changed the world forever. I mean, think about like the Gutenberg printing press, for example. It was in, invented in the mid-15th century, around about the 1440, 1450 uh, sort of time. Now, among other areas of society, it had a huge driving impact on the Protestant Revo- uh, Reformation uh, back then, which went on and completely changed Europe. Okay, I'll prompt you. Don't worry about it. Um, it completely changed Europe, and it went on to change the world, obviously. Then think about the World Wide Web. I think about how the world has changed since the World Wide Web came along. Um, it was designed and utilised originally for military applications, for government applications, um, and became commercially used around about the sort of late 80s, early 90s. Now just think about how that has impacted and opened up sort of the world of computing, global computing and communication, trade, with no limits whatsoever as to regards to where your geographical location is. It's just, it's changed the world. WWW has changed the world. It's incredible. What about this? The smartphone. You know, it's a little wonderful gadget that we all carry around in our back pocket, tucked away. Do you know, that really only came around, it's only been around since 2006, 2007. So just over a decade, this thing. And uh, <coughs> just think about how that's impacted our lives. <coughs> Actually, 2006 and 2007, it was also happens to be the same year that the Facebook uh, platform kind of made its global debut. It was also the year when Twitter came online, the sort of micro-blogging platform, and, and a whole plethora of other apps that came about around that same, same sort of time, 2006, 2007. It kind of marks the official start date of the digital age. And the world hasn't been the same since. And you know, that wasn't that long ago, if you think about it. It's like yeah, iPhones and smartphones and Facebook and Twitter. We can't imagine life without them, can we? I can't live without my iPhone. And yet, just over a decade ago, they never even existed. Isn't that amazing? Just 11 years, 10, 11 years, 12 years, and it's like, it's totally changed the world. Now, what's really interesting is in spite of all these advancements in the digital age and all the gadgetry that's kind of come along, it's a statistical fact that our attention span has been dropping year on year. Did you know that? Studies are being done. This is serious, man. Uh, from 2000 to 2013, our average attention span has fallen from 12 seconds to 8 seconds. <laughs> Which is even more unnerving when you realise that the average goldfish 
has an attention span of nine seconds. <laughs> What's interesting is that in spite of all these advances in technology, <clears throat> that, that in the digital age, statistically, statistically we are, our attention spans is dropping. You see, you see where I'm going there, don't you? <laughs> just running that passage, just for those that are checking out, checking in again. Uh, don't matter. Wait. Wasted. Uh, what's even more unnerving is that there are literally thousands of apps and devices situated in all of your homes, things that are competing for your attention 24-7. There are so many distractions, so many things that want to distract you every single day. Linda Stone, she's a researcher for the global giant Microsoft. She said that we operate our lives under what she calls continuous partial attention. Continuous partial attention. She's saying we want to be just like connected into everything. We want to be a part of everything. We want to be connected. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's just out of fear of missing out on something. I don't know. But we we want to be connected in. But we don't want to be connected in at any level of depth. We we seldom give ourselves undividedly to any one thing in life. It's kind of divided across a number of things. In in a way, we've kind of become addicted to the distractions in life. We just need them. You know, there aren't many places left in life where we can be alone with our thoughts. You know? Well, there's a bath, I suppose, and a shower. But what about when Apple comes up with their like, waterproof sleeve, you know? <laughs> or whatever you do. I mean... <coughs> now, Kindle do it, don't they, dear? They do the waterproof sleeve. <laughs> and knows that. She's got one. So, and I'm kind of making fun, but actually it's quite serious. The, the fact that we yield ourselves to distraction, it really does matter. Because within this, with this kind of continuous barrage of noise and distraction and addiction that we have to it, it's robbing us of our basic core ability to be present to others and to be present to ourselves and to be present more than anything to God. The thing is, this affects us in so many areas of our life. It affects us emotionally, our emotional well-being. We grow accustomed to living in this kind of constant state of well, low-level stress and anxiety. That's become the norm. It's like, oh yeah, it's just life, you know. It affects our physical well-being. We're constantly over-busy running from one scheduled appointment to the next scheduled appointment. We're in a rush all the time. We're always overtired and feeling rushed. It also affects our spiritual well-being because we go away feeling more and more distant from God. It affects everything. You know, I'm sure that some of us have got more of an intimate relationship with our iPhone than what we do have with God. <laughs> I, I know, that sounds a bit na- naughty for me to say that, doesn't it? I think, I think we do. I think sometimes we spend more time. I, I forget now, there were some studies uh, done, and just like on the average throughout the day, how many t- how much... You know, they were talking about teenagers, but I think it applies to everybody, you know. They spend so many hours per day on this thing. How many, how many, how many hours do we spend with God, just spending time with him? No guilt with that, okay? No guilt. This is, it applies to me too. So what can we do then? Is there something in the way of Jesus, his lifestyle, that we can kind of opt into to enable us to thrive in life in the midst of this swirl of modern-day 
Society, yes, is the answer. And it's called silence and solitude. It's the practice of silence and solitude. So let's make a start then. We'll have a look at some scriptural passages. This is Matthew chapter 3. We'll come up. Hopefully, if it works. Hey, that's cool. Um, you'll see when it kind of runs out, you'll probably have to move up to the, to the next slide. But we kind of come into this story, a real poignant stage of, of Jesus' story. This is Jesus is, is going to be baptized and he's about to be launched into his public ministry. In terms of his day job as being Messiah, he hasn't done anything yet. Okay, So he's about to be launched into that. So from verse 13 then. Uh, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. Then chapter four. So this is like then. As in then, as soon as he'd come out the water and he blow dried his hair, changed his clothes, had a big dry off or whatever. And then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the story kind of goes on from there. I'm sure most of us have read that like a 100 times, 200 times, many, many, many times. Jesus was baptized. He's anointed by God for ministry. The Holy Spirit has come upon him. He's empowered him for ministry. And what's the first thing he does? Checks in on Facebook. (laughs) No, he didn't check in on Facebook. He didn't go start writing his blog on what he's about to sort of go and do. He doesn't go and hire a big white marquee so he can set up a big preaching campaign. He doesn't go looking for crowds of people to, to go and teach or anything like that. He said what? He goes straight into the where? Into the wilderness. Now, it's interesting, that word, the word wilderness there, it, that's what we've got in the English. In the Greek, it's eremos. We have a look at this. Eremos. Now, eremos can be translated in a number of different ways. I'm talking, these are the scholarly people tell me this. I, I'm not clever, you know, hands up. I'm not a Greek-speaking or Hebrew. Eremos can be translated as desert place. Wilderness, as it does in, in our place here, it can also be translated as solitary place or a lonely place. I like that one, a lonely place. So when you think about that, Jesus was led by the Spirit into a lonely place. And then think about that phrase there. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What is going on? What's going on there? It seems like a really strange thing for the Holy Spirit to do, I think. Um, you know, it just seems a little bit bizarre that he would lead Jesus into the desert. He's going to have these 40 days of fasting and prayer. And then he's going to actually have his first clash with Satan, as it were. Um, and he kind of like, we read that and we kind of think, uh-oh, Holy Spirit, that wasn't such a good dream. <laughs> 
Did you think about that, Holy Spirit? You know, to actually release Jesus then or lead him into this place where he's not going to be eating for a long period of time, fasting and, and whatever. And then he's going to sub- be subjected to a tough time of temptation with the devil. Don't think that was a good idea, Holy Spirit. But that's what you did, okay? And so the kind of way that we read that and we kind of try to make sense of that is, you know, Jesus was in this place of weakness. He was in this 40 days he's out there and the tempter came to him in his time of weakness, uh, and, and you kind of we think, yeah, no, that's like the tempter does anyway. That's what the devil does. That's his tactics, isn't it? He comes to us when we're weak, when we're tired, and when we're kind of at our low point in life. It's then when he kind of comes to us and tries to pick us off. And they're saying we're trying to make sense of that, but there's still this issue that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit to that place to be tempted. Um, I've come to realize, and what I think we need to realize, is actually the Eremos, this wilderness place, is in fact, it's not a weak, a place of weakness. A place of solitude is a place of strength. The Holy Spirit led Jesus to Eremos because it's after 40 days of silence and solitude that Jesus is at his absolute peak of spiritual strength. That's where he's at his absolute strongest. It's only then, in that place, after a time of solitude, that he has the strength that he's going to be needed to actually take on the devil the way he actually did. (coughs) And actually, if you start to read through the stories of Jesus, that's a pattern you see come up over and over and over again. Why don't we have a look at Mark Mark chapter 1? It's another example. Mark, he begins... Mark begins his gospel with that same record that we just read. Okay, so Jesus has been baptized. He's headed off into the wilderness to be tempted. And straight after that, in Mark, actually, verse 14 of Mark uh, 1, it's essentially Jesus' first day on the job as Messiah. Okay, and his day is absolutely packed out from start to to finish from morning into late evening he's calling disciples and he's building his team he's he's going out he's doing ministry casting out demons and uh healing loads and loads of people and as i say that is going on all day and into the evening and then we come right at this place where verse 35 it says very early in the morning while it was still dark jesus got up left the house and went off to a solitary place guess what the greek word is Hiramus. He went to the wilderness, the, the lonely place, the solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions, they went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else now to the, a nearby village so that I can go and preach there also. That's why I've come. So he traveled throughout Galilee preaching in the synagogues and driving out demons. Wow. Jesus, get this. He's been in Eremos for 40 days, 40 nights, 40 days, whatever it is. And he comes back, he's done a day at work, and he's back to Eremos again. <laughs> he's done one day, and he's back into Eremos. Eremos, in other words, it wasn't just a one-off event for Jesus. It was a continual going back and forth. It was like he would work, and then he was straight away back into that solitary place, back to be with the Father. Then he'd work, and then he'd be back again into the solitary place um, in preparation for the next adventure. Then we turn to chapter 6 of the same uh, gospel. 
Verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. It's like, they're like really excited. Jesus, we've been out, we're teaching over here, we've been doing a bit of healing as well. We've been kind of setting, setting people free from demons and all that. They're really excited about that. But Jesus doesn't seem all that impressed by them, as we'll see in a minute. Verse 31, then because so many people were coming and going, that they did not even have chance to eat. Have you ever been at that place where you've been just so busy, you've had a chance to stop and eat? I, I know, I mean, I'm, I'm terrible. Once I get into doing stuff, that's it, I just don't stop. It's like, eh, don't distract me with food, who needs food, you know? Um, I'm parents, parents of young kids. I mean, you know this. How many times do you go through your day just... I just get on with stuff, looking after the kids, making home, doing whatever you need to do. Just don't have time to eat, let alone set aside time for God and being with him. <coughs> just seem maxed out on, on so many other things. Where was we? Oh, yeah. <laughs> he said to them, Jesus said to them, come with me by yourself to a quiet place, Eremos, and get some rest. Eremus, come to Eremus with me. An invitation for Jesus to come to the solitary place. And that invitation is to all of us still today. And you know what? It wasn't a, come, let, yeah, yeah, let's go and get some beers, lads. <laughs> yeah, we need to let a hat down. Let's go night on the town. Let's not just yeah, hang out. Hey, let's, it wasn't, you know, let's just get some popcorn. We watch the latest films just come out on Netflix or anything like that. It wasn't... Uh, yeah, let's look for the next distraction or the next entertainment. It was calm. Let's, let's go into Aramis. Let's go and be with the Father. Let's go and rest with him. So verse 32. So they went away by themselves in a boat to Aramis, a solitary place. And then check out where the story goes. This is so sad. <laughs> verse 33. But many who saw them leaving recognized them, and they ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed, he saw the crowd. He said, he was so peeved and said, not you lot again. <laughs> Actually, that would be me, you know. I don't know if you've been, you've been through a long day or something, you get home and somebody phones you. <laughs> Go away. Um, <laughs> that would have been me, but not Jesus. When Jesus landed, uh, he saw the, the, a large crowd. He said he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them uh, many things. I don't know if you've been in that situation where you've tried to do the right thing. I'm going to carve out some space in my time. I'm going to spend this time with, with God. She's going to have this quiet time. I know it's important. And then something comes along. Somebody, you know, a phone call from a friend or something, and yeah, they genuinely need some help, so you have to kind of scoot off and go and help them. Or there's just a pile of emails, work-related emails. You've just got to respond to them. There's always something which is out of our control that comes along. Have you noticed that? It happens, doesn't it? I mean, that's just the mess of life. That's just the mess that we, we experience. It's the mess that Jesus experienced uh, himself. It's just the messy reality. But Jesus, in spite of needing that time with the Father, it was late, and he makes sure that everybody's fed and that they're all okay. Then look, look how this story finishes at verse 45. It said, Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida 
while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. <laughs> he got that time away. Jesus made that a priority to be alone with his father. And not because Jesus was like some kind of super spiritual person that does like, he's into praying, prayer vigils at midnight, you know? You can read it that way. You can read that and say, oh, Jesus, he's just so spiritual. I just wish I was like Jesus, really super spiritual. I, I don't know. I, I don't think Jesus was going up there trying to clock brownie points up with dad, um, you know, having a midnight prayer vigil. Although he was into prayer, you know, I mean, he, Jesus was into prayer. But within the context of the story that we're reading here, it's because his schedule was just so full. He was just so maxed out. It was like this is the only time that he had to actually get away with his father. And he made that point. He made that point of carving in that time. It was like, hey, crowds, I've got to get out of here. I've got to go and spend some time with dad. I really need to be with him. He knew that he needed that time desperately to be with his father. And he, need, he knew he needed it even more than sleep sometimes. And Jesus liked sleep. You know, there's quite a few times you read, he was asleep at what seemed all the, the most inconvenient times. But, but he knew he desperately needed to be with the Father. And this, as I say, is a consistent pattern that we see with the life of Jesus right the way through the Gospels. It's like the more busy that Jesus becomes, you know, the more famous he becomes, the more you know, un- in demand he is by all the people wanting a touch from God or whatever, the more he withdrew into that place of Eremus, that lonely place to pray. And if we're really honest, what's it like for us? When we become busy, when we be, you know, things that we just rush off our feet, what's the first thing that gets thrown? Our quiet time with God. When we need it the most, when we're really, really busy. Jesus' lifestyle is marked by this repetitive need to get away and be alone with God on the mountainside, in the wilderness, in the park, late at night, early in the morning, whenever he had the opportunity. We read it again, over and over again in the Gospels. So today, then, we're talking about the practice of silence and solitude, what's become known as silence and solitude. I know, have you tried it? Have you tried it lately? Silence and solitude. <coughs> it's quite tough. I mean, just being still, being quiet, dialing down on all the noise, switching it off, removing that barrage of noise that comes in, and we often surround ourselves with intentionally, you know. <clears throat> yeah, you know, I really like silence. I do. I really like silence. Silence is a great place for somebody who's profoundly deaf. Because you're not reminded at that place that, of your disability. I could just be me. I'd just be without my deafness. And it's, that's really cool. But it's way, way more than that. To remove ourselves from all the noise, to take off the, the earphones, to switch off the TV, in itself it can be a real spiritual practice. A real spiritual practice. A spiritual discipline. Being silent. No talking. It can be a real peaceful place, you know. If you take yourself off somewhere where there's no traffic and no stuff going on, people coming and going, it can be a real peaceful place. Um, It can be a real place of emotional healing, you know, in that place of silence. We so undervalue silence, I think, in our society. 
But just try that. Try switching off the noise for a moment, the background noise of life. So that's talking about switching off the external noise, but it's not just about external noise, is it? We have internal noise as well. <laughs> you know when your mind is just like, it won't slow down, and you've got so much stuff going on inside. <coughs> and sometimes those internal noise can be as loud, if not louder, than the external noise, isn't it? <laughs> and so to really practice silence and solitude, silence, it's also about switching it off, learning to switch off all the internal noise as well. It's saying, I'm, I'm going to choose not to allow my mind to yield to those internal voices, to those internal noises. I'm going to actually take captive those thoughts, and I'm going to set my thinking on things above. So that's silence. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. And as I say, it's kind of a, it's a spiritual practice in and of itself, and great, great benefits. But what about solitude? <laughs> and so often we kind of put those things together, don't we? Silence and solitude, like prayer and fasting. It's like that brother and sister. They go together really, really well. Well, first of all, when we're talking about solitude, it's different to isolation or loneliness. So we're not talking about isolation or loneliness. Actually, Richard Foster in his book, some of you probably read this book, Celebration of Discipline. It's been around since, I think it's early 80s. It's most people who are interested in Spiritual disciplines, they've got this book on their, on their shelf. Um, he said this, he said, loneliness is inner emptiness, whereas solitude is inner fulfillment. Loneliness is inner emptiness, whereas solitude is inner fulfillment. The founding pastor of New Hope Christian Fellowship, the next slide here, uh, Wayne Cordero, in Honolulu, of all places, um, he wrote on this topic, and he said this, there is a difference between isolation and solitude. They may contain similar characteristics, but in reality, they are worlds apart. Solitude is a chosen separation from, uh, for refining your soul. Isolation is what we crave when we neglect the first. <laughs> that go in <laughs> for a moment. Silence. And solitude is all about us disconnecting from the noise and from all the busyness of the world. And it's in that place of silence and solitude where we are heightened to our own emotions. We're actually freed up to actually feel our own emotions. And maybe the emotions that we've been trying to run from or to kind of crowd out by feeling, you know, bringing in external noise or whatever. We're just trying running away from things. In silence and solitude, it's where we face who we really are. And that's like all the good stuff, but it's also all the bad stuff. It's in silence and solitude where we actually recognize our commitment and our love to God. And it's also, on the other hand, it's where we see our lack of love and commitment towards God as well. It's in silence and solitude where we, we, we really see where all of our securities lie or where all of our, our fantasies uh, lie. It's where we see all our misaligned motivations and all of our addiction, addictions in, in life. And all that is exposed in the place of silence and solitude, in that safe place of being before God. 
It's in that place also, in that silence and solitude where God's voice, it seems to break through. It seems to pierce through all this bombardment of voices that come at us from all different angles, you know. <laughs> it kind of breaks through the voice of TV and news and media and Facebook, uh, social media. It breaks through the voice of Satan, the enemy. You know, it helps us get to re- a real good perspective on the lies that the world tells us or what the enemy tells us versus God's truth. It's in the silence and solitude where we really discover who we are in God. Failing to get enough silence and solitude, as it causes, as I said earlier, it causes us to be distant from God. We'll end up being, becoming satisfied with living with someone else's spirituality or someone else's uh, relationship with God and how they're like living. And we kind of grow content with like adopting that as our life in some weird way. We lose sight of our own identity, who we are in God, and the calling that God has put on our life in the world. And it's in that place that we become vulnerable prey to the tempter. That's the place where we become vulnerable. We fall apart and we kind of fail when temptation and distraction comes along and we just end up drifting off. As I said earlier, we become unhealthy physically, we become unhealthy emotionally, we become unhealthy spiritually. Yet many, many people, if you read church history, many, many, many women and men of God down through history of the church have said that silence and solitude is probably the most important of all the spiritual practices. And we don't really give it that much value, I I think. Anybody heard of Henry Nguyen? uh, Or Henri Henri Nguyen? Yeah. It'll come up. Henri Nguyen, he was uh, a Dutch Catholic priest. Um, He was a writer, theologian from the mid-20th century. Yay, Dutch. Yeah, you must have heard of him. No. Uh, Okay, okay. (laughs) He wrote this. He wrote... Without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside some time to be with God and listen to him. Gulp. (laughs) He didn't really mince his words, does he? kind of says it as it is. You can't really be serious about your faith and about your spirituality and your spiritual life if you don't set aside time with God. (laughs) Now, the thing is... That statement may make us kind of a little bit uncomfortable, make us squirm a little bit inside. But if we think about it, we know it's really true, don't we? We, we know that it makes perfect sense. <coughs> yeah, if you think about any relationship that we have with anybody, you have to spend time together, don't you? You know, married couples. What would happen in your marriage if you were never alone together? You know, you never spent any time, never spent any kind of one-to-one time just connecting and talking, resting together, making love, being one. What would happen? It, it, it wouldn't last. I mean, it's just full stop. I mean, it just, it's just not going to, you wouldn't make it. And it's the same for any relationship with our best friends, with our family members. Take away the make love bit, okay? <laughs> but it's the same with any of those relationships. And more importantly, it's the same with our relationship with God, we need to set aside time to be with him. You know, I think as a church community, I think we would do really well to recapture this um, practice of silence and solitude as a church. And I know it's, 
it's hard. I know it's so countercultural. You know, it doesn't really fit. Um, you know, to intentionally to separate noise away, to filter out, switch off the noise of life, and to intentionally or purposely set aside regular times to be alone with God. I know it doesn't. It's no. It didn't naturally fit in with life, does it? I mean, it's just so countercultural. It's crazy. But the thing is, we all need to do it. As Henry Nguyen said, you know, we can't have a spiritual life unless we do it. And we saw how the Lord needed to do it. Jesus needed to do it. And if Jesus, the Lord of Lords, he needs to do it, then how much more <laughs> do we need to do it? Now, we've got to remember that each of us are at different stages in our spiritual journey. We're at different stages of life. You know, life seasons, I spoke about this before. Um, I've said before that we need to be mindful of our own life season. We need to, uh, uh, based on that, set ourselves achievable goals. For example, it would be easy for a, easier for a single person or somebody who's just got a single job and no other kind of responsibilities or commitments or whatever, it's easier for that person to set aside some quality time with God than it would be, say, a mum who's holding down two or three jobs with two or three kids and trying to make home and look after the husband and be a good wife. You know, it, it's different. But that, that's not to say that the, the mum that I just described doesn't need alone time with God. They still need that time with God. But they just need to be mindful of the season that I'm at right now and I'm going to actually build uh, goals that are achievable within my life stage right now. Also, um, we need to consider our own personality. There are some of us who are quite introverted, like me. I'm quite an introvert. And if you're introverted, you kind of naturally gravitate towards silence and solitude. You know, being in that place where you can just be reflective and pray and stuff like that. That's kind of a natural thing. But what about if you're an extrovert? You love being around people, sharing meals and partying and all that sort of things. <coughs> You still need silence and solitude. You still need to be in that quiet place with the Lord. You need to be away with the Father. The bottom line is, for all of us, there is room for improvement when it comes to building a like good repetition in our lives, right? And I've said this before, there's no formation without repetition. There's no formation without repetition. It's all about us building simple, repetitive practices that over time, they begin to do something to us or in us. I've said that quite a few times in this series. The things that we do over time do something to us. And so I've got this idea. I had this crazy idea that we're going to launch as a church community into actually doing the practice of um, silence and solitude. Aren't you really excited about that? I thought you was, in my mind when I ran through that, I thought it was going to be like, yeah, whoa, whoa. <laughs> We're going to actually do the practice of silence and solitude as of this week. I just want to encourage us all to participate. Now, if you want to, what I've got is a six-part um, study over here and printed some off. Actually, this is just part one um, of a six-part guide to silence, silence and solitude. Okay, really basic. And you know what I encourage? You can do it on your own. 
But I think, oh, so much better if we did it in our, like, Thai groups. You know those three is enough groups that we're all part of now? (laughs) (laughs) Our three is enough groups where we can kind of encourage one another and go through and be accountable to one another and say to each other, how are you doing with the silence and solitude this week? And So it's just a, a very basic guide, and this is just week one. We've got like eight copies here, but if they all go, which I'm sure they're always going to go immediately, I, I'm going to put some up online as well so you can download print off your own copy. But just, again, thinking about Thai groups, how three is enough groups, getting together with another two or three others, just to make ourselves accountable, to pray for each other, support each other. And we'll, we can do this together. Kind of do it together as a church community, do it together in our Thai groups. The important thing is, as a community, I think we, I, I want us to be all about practice and not performance. <laughs> yeah? So, no guilt. There's no guilt and, you know, if you don't do this, you don't do four hours a day. Uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. This is about us practicing, and we maybe need to start small. I think once you start getting into this, taking time out and switching everything off, and this would be diff- it's difficult for more difficult for some than it is others. But once you start getting into that, you you find wow, t- the two minutes like felt like twenty minutes. <laughs> but, you know, it's really really difficult for some, and so I know some make it, find it easier. But it's all about practice. Not performance. No place for guilt. This is just a simple tool for help us to building some good practices into our life to help grow Christ-likeness into our lives. Which is our goal, isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> good. Why don't we stand? <laughs>